So welcome to a serious security seminar. Uh, I'm uh, Ning Hui Li. I'm actually the official instructor for this course. Uh, I'm a professor of computer science here at Purdue. I joined Purdue uh, on the, for now, I guess, uh, close to 12 years, 11, more than 11 and a half. Uh, and my research are in security and privacy. Um, so uh, yesterday I was reminded that the speaker that's originally scheduled for today canceled. Uh, I probably got the notification earlier, but I didn't pay attention, so I received the reminder yesterday. So I guess one of the perks of being the instructor of this course is that uh, I get to give this talk uh, <laughs> uh, today. And so um, I'm going to talk about the uh, privacy in data publishing and analysis. And this is an area that uh, my uh, research group has been working on for, I guess, about uh, seven, eight years now. Um, so uh, we all know we live in an information age and the fuel for the information age is data. So the, we are generating a lot of data and those data can be very useful as well. Uh, so it's often one entity or well, one organization collects the data and then it's necessary for them to share the data with other entities so that the data can be better used. Uh, so there are different reasons for such data sharing. One obvious one is for research. So researchers want to analyze, for example, medical data, uh, genomic data in order to discover better treatment and to figure out what, what works and what does not. And some of the sharing are mandated by law and regulation. For example, the U.S. Census Bureau uh, does a census every 10 years and they collect huge amount of data and they, by, by law, they have to share that data in some form uh, with the public and uh, the social scientists and policy makers, they will analyze those, those data to identify uh, what needs to be done to improve the, the, the social, uh, well, the social, uh, social justice or social benefit. And uh, of course, there's also data are needed for decision making either in business or in security purposes. For example, it would be really nice if we can monitor uh, internet traffic at different points and then correlate the information uh, so that to decide whether there's a, uh, some kind of attack going on. Um, but in all of this, uh, this kind of uh, sharing situation, uh, one critical consideration is the privacy. Uh, oftentimes, the way the data is collected, the, the data is about some individuals and those individuals do not want their data to be shared with the public. So we want to uh, use this data in a way that preserves the, the, the privacy, at the same time um, be able to learn useful information from the data to benefit the public. So, so one of the main areas uh, that uh, researchers are working on is to try to define this uh, privacy precisely. So we want to know what exactly is uh, privacy are we talking about. Um, and in the tradition of security, oftentimes it's very hard to define what is security, but it's somewhat easier to define what is insecurity, what, when something is bad. Uh, and, but if we can precisely define what is bad, then we have a definition for what is good. So security basically means none of the bad things happen when, when we are under attack. So similarly, we apply the same method for defining privacy. We want to define when is a pri what is a privacy violation. And then privacy simply means privacy violation does not occur. Um, but privacy is not just a technical concept. I, I can't really just um, 
to sort of just looking at the problem only from a technical point of view doesn't make sense because the privacy is about individuals and it's very much a social concept. So in order to define what is a privacy violation, we have to look at the, the sort of the social uh, societal responses to different things and, and infer what the society considers as privacy violations. And then we can try to uh, distill what are the essence of privacy violation in those uh, uh, scenarios. So therefore, we're going to look at a few situations where I think the public in general agree a privacy violation occurred and it has uh, significant uh, consequences both for the research community and for the, um, uh, for the general public. So, so the first example um, is uh, uh, documented by Latanya Sweeney uh, when she was a PhD student at MIT. Um, so uh, the, the, the organization Group Insurance Commission uh, operates the, the health insurance for all the public employees of the state of Massachusetts. Uh, and so they collect all this medical data about public employees of, uh, of uh, Massachusetts state. And then they give this data to researchers, and also they, are, they actually also sell this data to, uh, to the industry. Uh, but of course, they know they can't sh share this data in, their, in the form that they get them, because that would be obviously privacy violation. So what they did is they tried to anonymize the data, so re remove the name and the other obvious identifiers, which would include, I imagine, phone number, social security number, uh, address, uh, because those things can be easily uh, linked to individual identities. Uh, however, what remains in the data are uh, date of birth, gender, and zip code. And what Natania Sweeney found is that using these uh, three pieces of information, over 80% of the population in U.S. can be uniquely identified. Um, and in fact, and also you can get this data from other sources. So in fact, the voter registration uh, list include all this data and you can buy voter registration list uh, from some government agency. I think, uh, I remember for $20 you get the voter registration list and then you correlate that with here you can find all uh, the medical record of all kinds of individuals. In the paper, she mentioned that she can find the medical record of the former governor of Massachusetts, and uh, uh, obviously many other people can be found. So uh, this was uh, uh, considered a, a privacy violation. So I think everyone agrees. Now, at the abstract level, why this is a privacy violation? I believe that what happened is the data is supposedly to be anonymous because, because when the health insurance company collects our data, they don't have the right to give our data to the public. However, the reason they gave it is because they assume it's anonymous. But in this case, we can re-identify uh, the, the, the supposedly anonymous records. We can point to a record and say, I know this record belongs with this individual. And because of this re-identification happens, uh, there is a privacy violation. So then this work sort of uh, uh, jump-started the last, I guess, uh, uh, 15 years or so intensive research in the research community to try to study uh, data privacy. So th there were a lot of uh, research before that, mostly in the, actually mostly in the statistical community. They figure out how to publish statistical data uh, about, uh, about the data set while preserving individual privacy. But this work sort of um, uh, made the, 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 attract the attention of the computer science community to look at this problem intensively. So the second example I want to talk about is this uh, uh, American online data release. So I don't know any of you remember this incident? Yeah, it's, uh, some of you do. So in 2006, AOL released the search keywords 
of, um, uh, I guess, over half a million users over a three-month period. So obviously, uh, user IDs uh, need to be anonymized. Um, they are replaced by random numbers. Um, so in a sense, this is a good thing. So as a researcher, uh, one of the sort of most valuable things is real data. So the fact that AOL is releasing the data is really to the advantage of the research community. It's something from a researcher point of view we should really encourage. Unfortunately, the anonymization method they did, which is just replacing the, 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 the IDs with random numbers, is not good enough. Um, and I think they might have also done some other things. Because if you think about it, think about your own search, uh, search records. Identifier doesn't really matter. So I think myself, I actually often I search my own name if only to find the DBLP page of my publications to, re to get information from it. And uh, also I search my, my own address a lot because I either for driving direction or search for a restaurant near my, my address. So the search record actually is easily linked with the personal identity. So I think AOL probably did something to remove those obvious uh, uh, links. But that's not good enough. Um, it, so three days later, an article appeared uh, in New York Times. Uh, two reporters show that it is possible to um, look at this uh, supposedly anonymous search record and then re-identify individual. And in particular, the article, uh, I think the article is titled The Face is Shown. So the face that's shown is this uh, lady. And if you look at the, 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 the search keyword, it includes the town name that the lady lives in. So that narrows it down. And it includes uh, a lot of query with uh, uh, last name Arnold. So the reporter uh, assumed, uh, inferred that the lady's last name must be uh, Arnold. So then they basically look up the, 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 the white pages, the phone directory, to see, they find, I think, uh, maybe a dozen or so entries with the last name in this town. And they call them one up, one by one. And in, they confirm, uh, this lady confirmed that this record uh, is, uh, is hers. So, um, and I, I guess also think about, uh, well, um, what, what are the sensitive information that, that might be included in your search record? So uh, at least personally, I think uh, the things I search, I consider is really sensitive. At least uh, there are really sensitive things included in my own search record. I definitely don't want people to know what are the things that I'm, uh, I'm searching. Um, so uh, this is a, a second example. And in this case, there's a serious consequences. Um, so AOL. Uh, pull the data immediately after New York Times published the article. But of course, as we all know, the, in the internet, once the data is up there, it's always out there. You can't really retract it. So in fact, you can download the AOL search data set uh, today from the internet. And in fact, I think um, many researchers actually use the data set, but mostly for, um, for other researchers, mostly as a, as a, just use, a, for example, keyword uh, for example, for uh, frequent item set mining kind of, uh, uh, kind of research instead of trying to learn sensitive information. Um, and also the person directly in charge was fired. I think some executive was fired. And as we are in America, there's a class action lawsuit uh, followed. Uh, and AOL, I think, uh, settled out of court for a multi-million dollar uh, 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 fine or, or, or settlement. So again, in this case, I think it's a privacy violation because the data is supposed to be anonymous. Because if it's not anonymous, AOL shouldn't share the data. But while it's supposed to be anonymous, we can do re-identification. So then this is a privacy violation. So the last example I want to talk about um, is uh, in this um, genome-wide association study, known as the GY study. So a typical study 
uh, will examine many individuals uh, in two different groups. That one group are individuals that have certain disease. A control group are individuals that do not have the disease. And the researcher will look at the genomes of the two groups and try to find out which genes or, uh, or ge genomic information, DNA information, is highly correlated with the disease. And therefore, we try to understand the, the, uh, what, what, what causes the disease and try to find treatment. So there are lots of this uh, study going on. And uh, a typical study will examine uh, many of these uh, locations on the genome where people differ. Because for a vast majority of the lo location, every, uh, everyone are the same. Um, but for some of the locations, the, the genome differ, and they differ in sort of in a significant sense. I guess the, this will result in different, um, different protein being, being, uh, being expressed from the, from the different genome. Um, and as a tradition, when you do this uh, research, you want to make the data sort of available so that other researchers can do similar analysis to validate your research. So the norm is people will publish aggregated statistics. Um, basically, the frequency of the of the, 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 the different variants on a particular location uh, in the disease group and in the control group. So this is uh, sort of the, the, the form of the data that is published. We will look at many different uh, locations on the genome. So these are known as uh, SNPs. So for each of the location, we will publish. Uh, and each of the, for each of the location, typically there are two variants, variant A and variant B. So some people have variant A, some people have variant B. So they will publish aggregate. Um, of uh, each of the groups. So, for example, here we are seeing for the disease group uh, on, on SNP A, uh, SNP one, forty-three uh, percent of uh, people have variant A, meaning fifty-seven percent will have variant B, and so on. Um, so they also publish this for the control group, but but the control group is not important for the particular attack. So this was what people have been doing for years, and then in uh, two thousand eight, a group of researchers um, published an article showing that there's actually privacy uh, implications in publishing this data. So the assumption is that the attacker will know the average of the population where this, uh, this uh, disease group is drawn from. And in addition, if the attacker also knows one target individual's uh, um, genome information, then the attacker can figure out, can infer whether the target individual is in the disease group or not, even though this group are aggregate of potentially hundreds of individuals. So the intuition is that suppose we know the, the, the population average uh, for SNP, uh, SNP1 is 42 uh, percent. So um, and we know, we know that the target individual has variant A, then we would expect on average the disease group average to be slightly higher than the population average because the target individual contributed to this, uh, uh, to this variant A percentage. On the other hand, if the target individual does not have, um, if target individual does not have uh, 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 variant A, for example, for SNP B, uh, we would expect that the, 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 the disease group average to be slightly lower than the population average because the target individual, if, uh, well, uh, if the target individual is part of the disease group, we would expect that the disease group average is slightly lower than the population because he uh, sort of contributes to, to the other case. So every single SNP provides a very noisy signal of whether the individual is in the group or not. 
So if you just have a few of these uh, signals, it's not enough for you to, to conclude that whether the individual is in the group or not. Um, because any difference between the, the disease group and the population average could be explained by random noise. However, when you have tens of thousands of such noisy signal, then the aggregate signal become very strong. So you can conclude the person is in the group or not in the group with very high confidence. So that's what this, uh, this uh, uh, paper showed. And this um, also had a significant uh, impact. So the National in Institute of Health changed their regulations about uh, um, how you should publish this kind of research data. So now this aggregate data is no longer made publicly available. So it's collected in some database. And if you want to access it, you have to have an account. You have, uh, you have to basically uh, sort of uh, uh, kind of certify some process that you are a researcher in order to, to, to get the data. Uh, and similar policy change was adopted in UK by, by similar funding, uh, the, the corresponding funding agency. So again, in this case, um, people believe, the public believe there is a, a privacy violation. But here, we have something that's somewhat different from the previous two cases. Here, there's no re-identification. Re there's nothing that we point to something and say, this record belongs to this individual, because the data we have is actually aggregate information. So, um, what I believe what happened here is something called the membership disclosure. So looking at the data and knowing one individual's information, I can say with high confidence the individual's data contributed to this input. So I know the individual is a member of the data set that generated this output. So apparently when this membership uh, disclosure occurs, uh, people, the public agree there's a privacy violation. So then uh, I, I want to point out that Suppose we can eliminate membership disclosure. Suppose we, we make it impossible for you to conclude that this individual contributes to, uh, to, the, to, the, uh, to the data that generated the output. Then we also eliminate um, re-identification. Because if you, if, if, you don't, if you don't even know the individual is in the input, you can't possibly re-identify by saying this record belongs to this individual. So re-identification implies membership. Uh, uh, from the other way, if we can prevent the membership disclosure, we prevent, we prevent the re-identification uh, disclosure. So that's sort of the intuition that led to the later privacy frameworks that we developed called membership privacy. Basically, we are trying to prevent uh, people from learning membership information. So, uh, so I mentioned that I've been working in this area for a number of years. And in, the, in the, our research program, there are basically two main goals. First is to, to come up with the right definition for privacy. Uh, and the second is, once we have a definition, we want to be able to either publish the data or anonymize the data uh, so that we can satisfy the privacy requirement. At the same time, we want to be able to learn useful information from the data. Because if, we, if, if the only thing we want is privacy, then it's easy, right? We just don't publish the data. So the reason we want publishing data is we want to get some utility of the data. So it's the trade-off between privacy and utility that uh, makes this uh, challenging. So, um, so I've uh, given sort of um, uh, motivation for the work. And uh, next, I'll talk about the evolution of privacy notions, uh, I guess, in the computer science community over the last, uh, I guess, 15 years or, um, or so. Uh, and then I'll talk about the, the current sort of um, standard privacy notion, which is differential privacy, and our uh, work on membership privacy, which sort of generalized differential uh, privacy.
And if we have time, I'll give some example about privacy preserving data publishing. If not, then I'll just uh, skip that part. So uh, if any of you have questions, you can just uh, raise your hand, um, interrupt me. Okay. Okay. So um, so Latanya Sweeney discovered this um, uh, this attack in in in, uh, in the in the Massachusetts uh, healthcare data. So she also proposed the privacy notion uh, together with. Um, um, uh, with Priangela Samarati, they propose the concept of K-anonymity. So the intuition is you don't publish precise data, you make the data uh, sort of, um, uh, you, make, you do what's known as generalization, you make the data less precise so that if the attacker knows some information about the individual, then knowing this information, he cannot pinpoint one record and say this record must be uh, the, the this individual's record. So whatever, whenever they, they, they find a match, there must exist at least a K record that, uh, th that matches this information. So the attacker would know one of the K records uh, correspond with the individual, but he doesn't know which one. So that's the idea of uh, K anonymity. So this notion relies on a set of attributes you assume the attacker already knows, and these are known as the quasi-identifier attribute, QID, and then you assume the rest of the attribute the attacker does not know, uh, which are uh, uh, called here sensitive attribute. So in this case, you may assume the attacker knows zip code, age, uh, or, uh, or, or birthday, or gender, but, but does not know the disease information. So that's the intuition of K-anonymity. Um, so, so this notion was proposed, uh, and then people started working on how do we publish data that satisfy K-anonymity um, in a way that re require minimum perturbation of the data. But then researchers uh, started to realize, well, maybe K-anonymity is not good enough. So um, one attack is the sensitive attribute may lack diversity. So, so for example, uh, in this case, the, 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 t the table that we publish is three anonymous, so it satisfies three anonymity. Uh, and suppose we know information about Bob, and then we're able to know, uh, to tell that Bob's record is one of the three, but we don't know which one. However, if all three records have the same value in a sensitive attribute, then we know that Bob has heart disease. So that seems something that's sensitive that can be learned from the published data. And similar, similarly, uh, this kind of attack can occur when the attacker already has some other background information. So for example, maybe the attacker knows Carl does not have heart disease, so this may be because of personal information or maybe because whatever um, culture background or whatever uh, thing you know, so that you know people like Carl are very unlikely to have that kind of disease. So given that background knowledge, then if you are able to match Carl to this uh, group, then you know he doesn't have heart disease, he must have cancer. So, so then, um, because of these kind of concerns, uh, this notion uh, of uh, L-diversity was uh, introduced, which requires that each of this uh, equivalence class, so this record that have the same quasi-identifier values, um, they must have certain diversity in their distribution of sensitive uh, attribute values. And there are sort of different ways of defining that. Um, and then, uh, so, so in a paper uh, uh, that, that, that our group wrote in 2007, we pointed out that even having high diversity, which basically means high entropy, is not good enough. Because sometimes 
um, a high, the highest entropy may not be the most privacy friendly. So what kind of distribution uh, we would want would depend on the, the distribution of the sensitive attribute value in the population. So the example we use in the, in the, in the paper is consider an attribute about the uh, test of, uh, of, um, uh, of HIV status, so whether it's positive or negative. Um, well, if, you, if someone belongs to a group with maximum entropy, that means that half of the group is positive, half is negative. So the fact that someone belongs to that group may enable actually quite sensitive inference because the background population may have a very low percentage of population are tested positive. So, so, so basically, uh, you have to look at what's the distribution of the whole data set. So we introduce this notion called the T-closeness, which requires sensitive attribute value um, the distribution of sensitive attribute value in every equivalent class is sort of closer to either the whole data set or a data set that's large enough so that whatever you can learn is not really individual but rather sort of you're learning information about the large group. And along this direction there are many other uh, privacy notions. So some, some people call this uh, sort of alphabet soup of uh, privacy notions. Uh, so I guess we don't, probably we don't have 26 uh, of them, but uh, I think uh, more than 10 you can, you can, you can find in the, in the literature. Oftentimes one paper proposes a notion and the next paper say, hey, see, this is not good enough, Let, now try this uh, variant. So in a sense, the fact that the people can sort of keep challenging each other about uh, what is the right privacy notion suggests that there's something fundamentally wrong or not, not good enough with, with, uh, with uh, this line of, uh, uh, of work. Um, so I think the main, uh, there, there are a number of um, um, limitations of the, the previous privacy notion, so, so uh, including the, the, the notion pr uh, proposed by, um, by myself. Um, one of the problems is they all require you to identify which attribute the attacker you can assume they already know, uh, quasi-identifier, and which attribute you assume the attacker do not know. So this is actually very hard. For example, if you think about census data, there are many, many attributes, and you're not defending against a single attacker. So you, you are defending against anyone who may be trying to learn sensitive information from the data. Some people may know some information about some individual, and other people may know different information about the same individual. So you can't really identify which are quasi-identifier and which are sensitive. Um, and also, even if you say my quasi-identifier include every attribute, which seems sort of the, the, the maximum privacy that you, you would ever want to uh, provide, that's actually not good enough because all these privacy notions are syntactic in nature, meaning that the privacy is defined as some syntactic property of the output of the data set. So if you want to know whether a data set is uh, private or not, you just look at the output. You don't look at the input. You don't consider the relationship between input and output. So. Um, one example that sort of illustrates the weakness of this is there's a trivial way of satisfying k-anonymity. That is, I take every record, I duplicate k time, and then I publish that as output. So it satisfies k-anonymity, but I, I'm actually not doing anything to the data. So I'm leaking the, all the information. Well, you, you might say no one is actually doing that, but in fact, some of the k-anonymization algorithms are doing things that somewhat similar to that. So those algorithms will be grouping a bunch of records together and then select one of the records in, in, in each group and then duplicate that record k time at the representation of that group. So in a sense, we are not 
compromising the privacy of everyone, but we are sample some individual and then say, well, you guys are sacrificed. I publish your data on change. So as we have seen from the, the, the past examples, compromising the privacy of a single individual can have serious consequences in the AOL data case. So basically, privacy have this uh, very much individual nature. So you have to protect the privacy of every single individual. So if, if, you, ever, if you consider over all individuals, you have to provide the worst case uh, protection instead of average case protection, saying on average, people's privacy is protected, but then some people's privacy may be totally compromised. So that's not acceptable for, for privacy. So, 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 so there's this uh, limitation in that these privacy notions are purely syntactic. So I, I would like to make an analogy. This is like we are trying to define uh, security of encryption, and, and we, we make the definition only depends on the property of the cipher tag. So we say, well, encryption is secure. If the cipher tag contains the same number of zero and the same number of ones, blah, 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 that's never going to work because any uh, definition about security of encryption has to look at the transformation procedure. It has to look at what plain text result in this uh, cipher tag. If two plain tags are always resulting in different cipher tags, then looking at the cipher tag, you can tell. Uh, if plain tags always result in different uh, cipher tags, then looking at the cipher tag, you can learn what is the plain tag. So, uh, so basically, the privacy notion has to be about the transformation procedure. And that's what uh, uh, this uh, notion, differential privacy, which was developed mostly in the theoretical computer science community since around 2002, 2003. Um, and eventually, they, they arrive at this notion called differential privacy, which is actually very elegant. Um, so the intuition of this privacy notion is, um, suppose I have a data, and your data is, pub part, uh, is one of the records, and I want to publish the data, and you complain that your privacy may be compromised, then there's an easy fix for that, right? So I can throw out your data and publish the rest. Then you shouldn't be complaining that your privacy is violated if I'm if I'm publishing other people's data. Um, but of course, we can't quite do that uh, because you may complain about privacy, other people may complain about privacy, so then we have to remove everyone's data. So what differential privacy says is we can't quite achieve the, the, the goal that what I'm publishing is exactly the same as if removing the, your data. However, what we can do is what I'm publishing is quite close to what I might have published after removing your data. So even if I take out your data, there's uh, some probability that I'm going to publish exactly this output and I'm publishing now. If I can do that, then I can say, you shouldn't complain too much about the privacy because even if uh, your data is not here, I'm still likely to publish this information. Um, so that's the intuition of, uh, of uh, differential privacy. Uh, in, in, uh, another way to say it is whatever we are outputting will not be overly influenced by a single, single, uh, single record will not be overly influenced by a single individual's information. So more formally, uh, differential privacy is a, a notion about an algorithm. And because of the nature of the definition, the algorithm has to be randomized. So there's no way for you to have a deterministic algorithm of publishing data while satisfying differential privacy. Um, and this algorithm satisfies differential privacy if for any pair of uh, data sets that we call neighboring data sets, uh, and neighboring typically means that if I remove one tuple, I get the other uh, data set. Or another variant is I change one tuple, uh, I get the other, uh, other data set. So both of these have been used in the, in the literature. But the intuition is I change one, inf one, piece, one individual's information, and then the output should be similar. And the, 
and the similar is defined by this, uh, by this uh, line of formula at the end, uh, uh, last line of the slide. What it's saying is, uh, if you look at the, the uh, a set of possible outputs, so this defines output event. So for data set D, the algorithm will have some probability of generating a data set that's in this subset. So a particular output event may occur. For data set D prime, there's also a probability that the same event may occur. Now what we want is the ratio of the two probability is bounded by this uh, parameter e to the epsilon. So when, when epsilon is zero, we are basically saying the, we are always publishing the same information on D and on D prime, uh, but, but uh, that will be too strong to require. So oftentimes epsilon will be some small parameter. Uh, uh, it could be 0 0.1, could be one. So actually how to choose epsilon is actually also um, uh, sort of interesting and uh, challenging problem that actually motivated the professor Cliff Clifton's um, um, one of his uh, written paper, uh, not so written, I think two, three years ago, uh, sort of motivated by the fact that it's unclear what epsilon means in differential privacy and try to have a way of assigning semantics to it. So that's sort of the, 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 the definition of differential privacy. So any question about that? Yes? How can you be certain that when you've applied this algorithm and you've got this uh, data set output that it's going to be useful for researchers who are trying to ascertain something from that data set if it's been kind of uniform, if it's made uniform? A very good question. So um, in a, I guess in a short answer is you cannot, um, but also uh, oftentimes when you publish the data, you have to have in mind some kind of query you still want to be able to answer correctly, or, or at least as accurately as possible. Be because of the, the, the random noise, the perturbation introduced in the process, uh, there are some queries are guaranteed to be not answered correctly. So the hope is that ahead of the time, um, we will know there are certain queries that are of interest and the other queries are not of interest to us. So then we preserve uh, answer to those queries to be as accurate as possible. Uh, and that's sort of, in a sense, that's um, uh, why sort of it's not, once we have the definition we are done, it's there, when there are different data, when there are different uh, tasks we want to learn from data, then there are different tricks you can use to, to ensure that you can get the most accurate, or as accurate answer as, uh, as possible while satisfying the privacy notion. So then people can keep improving uh, the, that, uh, um, finding out new algorithm to achieve better utility under the same uh, uh, privacy requirement. Any other question? So, um, Differential privacy is um, uh, sort of very much motivated by the definition of uh, secure encryption in the, in the sort of uh, cryptography field because in encryption we are also saying given to plain text the output you shouldn't really tell whether the output is this guy or this guy so that's very similar. Um, yeah, so there's sort of the differences are somewhat, uh, somewhat uh, subtle and, and it, 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 it and it has a, a number of very nice properties so that people really like it. So that's um, uh, why this is sort of the, the in a sense, the, the golden privacy uh, definition uh, today. Uh, one of them is the composability. So this means that if, if one algorithm satisfies differential privacy for uh, epsilon one, and another algorithm also satisfies differential privacy for epsilon two, and you apply both algorithms on the same data set, the combined output will still satisfy differential privacy 
but the parameter is epsilon 1 plus epsilon 2 because you have leaked more information by publishing both. But at least it's not cat um, catastrophic, so it's just a sort of additive. Uh, gradually, the privacy decreases while you publish more and more. Um, so this is a very important property. And also some sort of general uh, facts is uh, counting queries can usually be answered accurately uh, because, because when you are counting how many records satisfy a particular condition, then changing one record can affect the result at most by one. So therefore, you, you don't need to add too much noise to make the, the uh, to, to give a reasonable accurate answer for, for a small number of counting queries. Um, but some queries are very hard to answer. So one example would be queries like max, because changing one tuple can totally change the possible answer. So there's really, in a sense, no way to satisfy differential privacy while still give a reasonable answer to queries like that. Um, and yeah, the main challenge in, in using differential privacy for a particular task is there are usually different ways of asking query um, to, so you have a final objective. So you typically translate that objective into a sequence of query you ask the data. And then you combine the output in some way to give an answer. So depending on how you ask the query and how you combine the answer, sometimes you can get much better answer than, than, some, than some of the not as optimized methods. So that's sort of where the, the, uh, sort of the challenge is in, in sort of applying differential privacy in, in data publishing. Um, and one thing that people often complain is satisfying differential privacy is actually very hard. And oftentimes practitioners, uh, for example, if you talk with uh, people in uh, bioinformatics or analyze genomic data, differential privacy is sort of a non-starter. Because people say, well, it's just too noisy. It's, uh, it's, I, I can't tolerate that, uh, that much of noise. Um, so then, in a sense, there's a... Uh, it's not clear that differential privacy is sort of the answer to the definition of privacy. So maybe we can do with a, uh, with a privacy notion that is weaker, or maybe in some situations, differential privacy by itself is still not strong enough. So uh, we explore the situation that uh, probably we can relax differential privacy. So intuition is what differential privacy says is suppose I have a um, uh, the, the, the attacker knows the input data is either a data set D or the data set with D with additional tuple T included. So the attacker knows everything about the rest of the data set. The only thing the attacker does not know is whether the top particular individual's data T is in the data set or not. So differential privacy guarantees that the attacker's ability to infer whether T is in the data set or not, or in other words, whether the input is D or D union T is limited. So that's what differential privacy provides. But in reality, there's no reason for us to assume the attacker knows everything else about the data set. Um, because that, that just doesn't, doesn't make sense. So it seems that what we want to, uh, it will suffice if we, uh, if we can protect the privacy so that the attacker knows one tuple, and then the attacker has st statistical knowledge about the rest of the data set. In that situation, the attacker cannot differentiate between whether the input is D uh, or the input is, uh, is, um, uh, is D with, with the T uh, added to it. So we are sort of, uh, the definition, in this definition, D will be sort of a random variable that can be, where the attacker uh, have some belief about this distribution, but he doesn't know exactly which one it is. Uh, and 
we want to point out that in all the privacy incidents that we have examined, uh, for example, the Massachusetts one and the, the AOL one, actually the, in both cases the attacker does not need to know any statistical knowledge. All the attacker need to know is one individual's information. Then the attacker can do re-identification. So this certainly protects against that. Even in uh, the GWISE case, the attacker know one individual's information and the sort of the general statistical information of the, uh, of the population. So again, that also falls under the protection of uh, this notion. Uh, so we introduced this, um, but unfortunately this privacy notion suffers from a very important limitation uh, that is it's not composable. So if you publish, uh, if one algorithm satisfies this and another algorithm also satisfies this, when you use them both and publish the result, the result together can totally violate privacy. So uh, this is sort of, uh, I guess, very sort of, uh, I, don't, I, I wouldn't say heartbreaking, but it's a sort of um, make, uh, I, I come up with this notion that I think really makes sense, but in the end, um, it had this uh, serious, uh, uh, serious limitation. So the in, I, I can actually give the intuition. So the intuition is, suppose there's one piece of sensitive information, and then uh, suppose I publish something else that the attacker, I, I have another piece of information that the attacker, that, that is not sensitive. So one example is, let's say, the, the how many um, uh, male tuple is in the, in the if, if we're talking about the person's data, how many tuples are, are, are male? So when we assume the attacker is uncertain about background knowledge, then that piece of information is not, um, it's, uh, it, it, it's okay to publish that piece of information. Now, if I, one algorithm publish that information, the other algorithm publish that information X-word with my sensitive information, then both algorithms individually will be uh, private. So it's like, uh, publishing key is okay, publishing key encrypted message is okay, but when I publish both, then the message is revealed. So that's sort of the fundamental um, problem with, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with this uh, uh, approach. Um, and at the same time, there's a series of paper challenging differential privacy. Um, in, so sort of coming up with different reasons. One paper realized that differential privacy is not as strong as people think they are. So uh, people have made claim that differential privacy is robot to arbitrary adversary knowledge. So no matter what the adversary already know, differential privacy will protect you. Uh, and it has be, uh, th th this author argued that's not the case. And also, I mentioned earlier, Professor Clifton and his student um, uh, uh, argue that it's difficult to choose epsilon. And also, researchers argue that differential privacy does not prevent attribute disclosure. So even if the data is differentially private, suppose you provide good utility, then you can still learn good, let's say, classifier from the data and then apply that classifier to individual and now you learn more about this individual. So, um, so people have criticized differential privacy for that, but for, the, for this last point, I would argue uh, that shouldn't be a privacy concern because people could learn information about me without using my data. So let's say if people learn information about um, uh, let's say uh, uh, Chinese uh, who work in U.S. university as a computer science faculty member, that information may very well uh, apply to me, uh, at least probabilistically, but I shouldn't complain my privacy is compromised because the information is learned without my data. So I can't possibly say no one can learn any, any knowledge that may be applicable to me. That would be absurd. So I, I would say the last one does not apply. But the point that people can criticize differential privacy um, I think it means that 
there's room for for um, for examining whether pri differential privacy is really the, the, the end answer. And uh, my belief is no, because I, I actually it's a somewhat a little bit, um, um, the differential privacy definition is, can be argued to be a little bit sort of uh, uh, unnatural. So sure, the intuition that if I'm publishing exactly the same thing, whether your data is in there or not, that's private. So there's no question about that. But the problem is differential privacy does not achieve that. It will publish things that are different, whether you are in there or not. But the difference is bounded by that epsilon. But what exactly does that mean? So, um, so, I, so, so, so we come up with a privacy framework that we call membership privacy by exploiting the, the notion, the intuition um, that we get from examining privacy incidents. We define privacy as basically positive membership disclosure. So if looking at what you publish, I can positively identify, say, now I know this guy is in the input, then privacy is violated. If I cannot, then privacy cannot. Uh, then privacy is, uh, is protected. But to formalize that is actually a, a little bit uh, uh, challenging. So we need to assume that the adversary has some prior belief about what the input data set will be. So this is uh, modeled as a probability distribution over all possible data sets. Um, and then after the adversary see the output, the Dorothy basically applied Bayer's rule to update his belief about after seeing this, he knows this data set it couldn't be, and this data set now become more likely. So then the, the adversary can update his belief about the membership of a particular individual. Um, and, and the requirement is for any tuple, the belief about this person's uh, positive membership should not increase too much. So that's the, 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 the intuition. Um, but we, we, don't, we don't know exactly what the attacker believe ahead of time. So therefore, the definition is relative to a family of uh, prior distributions. So the attacker's belief, if the attacker's belief is taken from these family of distributions, then, um, then uh, we, we, can, we, can, we can protect, uh, we can ensure that membership inference does not, uh, the confidence does not increase too much. So I will skip the formal definition here because uh, um, uh, takes quite a bit of time to explain. Uh, so what we showed is that if you define privacy as the, we want membership privacy against the family of all possible uh, distributions, so the strongest possible, that's basically infeasible. That basically says don't publish anything. Uh, or you get an empty data set, you, uh, what you publish with this data set should not be too different if you replace that data set with a completely different data set. If you achieve that, you, you, you achieve the, 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 this membership privacy against the family of all possible distributions. So in a sense, you have to make some assumption about the attacker, even if, differential, even if you are using differential privacy. And in fact, differential privacy is equivalent to the membership privacy under the, the family of all distributions where membership of each tuples are mutually independent. So uh, basically, Differential privacy says if whether one guy's data is in the one guy is in the data or not, it independent from any of the other guys in the data or not. Then, um, then, th then satisfying differential privacy means that you also protect membership privacy. So that th there's a basically uh, equivalent. So you, you can I guess roughly see that from the definition because uh, differential privacy says if you change one tuple, the output should be similar. But maybe whenever a change occurs, it's always multiple tuples. So for example, whenever my data is, uh, if we are talking about medical data, maybe whenever my data is there, my family data are also there. 
So if you're only achieving differential privacy when changing one record, you're not really protecting my membership because even if I'm not there, my family member data there may influence the outcome and you can learn information uh, from that about, um, uh, about me. So uh, differential privacy is still limited. And then we show that all the other privacy notions that people have examined are sort of special cases of membership privacy. And we also come up with a sort of the, the weakest privacy notion that you can have, which is uh, membership privacy under the dis prior distribution where the attacker has a single uniform distribution. So the attacker believe any tuple in the universe could be in the input data set with some probability. And we show that, well, if that is your uh, prior belief, then it's actually possible to publish information about the max with uh, fairly high accuracy. So, so basically what we are saying is if you consider, uh, if you allow a weaker privacy notion, which um, maybe not good enough for some cases, but good enough for others, then you can publish more accurate information. So there are still a lot of things that people, uh, that, that, that you can examine to see, well, uh, whether there are other interesting instantiation of this uh, uh, membership privacy notion that's applicable in particular situations. But that's uh, sort of, um, uh, I think that's topic for future research. And to be really honest, I think it's a topic that is uh, really, really hard. Um, so I'm sort of personally myself, I'm not sure how much more I'm going to drive towards this direction because I felt that um, uh, whatever problem that I personally can solve sort of are mostly solved. So the problem that I really want to solve but I haven't been able to solve after seven or eight years are sort of too hard for me to solve. Um, so I think I'm out of time um, and I'm happy to take questions offline, I guess. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.